Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I am so excited for you to meet my guest today. Her name is Katie Willis, and she is a lot of things. First of all, she's someone that has been through the betrayal of addiction and is dealing with her own betrayal trauma and has found some incredible resources and has a mission to help women understand how to heal more quickly and more thoroughly. And she does coaching. She's a practitioner of quantum neural reset therapy and uh, yoga and a bunch of other things that she's going to talk to you about. And I'll definitely put a lot of her resources in the show notes so you can access her and all the wonderful resources that she has. She is passionate about helping women heal and reset their bodies and deal with the devastating impact that betrayal has both mentally, emotionally, relationally, but also physically. And that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode. So Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. And I'll just say that Katie actually is the one who reached out to me with a tremendous amount of enthusiasm (laughs) and said, I have something that your listeners can really benefit from. And so I did a lot of research, looked into what she had, and I feel really good about sharing this stuff with all of you today. And I'm just thrilled that Katie and her training and those who work with her are available to help partners. And even though she's locally based in Northern Utah, she also has a lot of online resources that she'll share with us. And I'm going to have her back in a future episode, and she's going to walk all of us through an exercise that you can even practice to do some hands-on stuff. So that'll be great. Yeah, so Katie, let's just dive right in um, and talk about trauma and its impact on the body and the brain. So I'm just going to say go and let you (laughs) educate us and teach us what you've learned and what you've seen both personally and professionally with all the training that you've done. Awesome. And please ask questions or oh, yeah. me. If I will. I'll interrupt you. Um, so I work, uh, the quantum neural reset therapy that Jeff, you were talking about, um, in pure English, I'm a brain specialist. And so, um, I've learned a lot about the brain and brain based wellness and health and like what you said with my own experience in trauma, it has been amazing to couple these together. So a little bit of um, basic and hopefully not overwhelming understanding of the way that the brain, the brain works. There's a couple different parts to the brain. And when our brain is forming um, in utero, our brain starts from the bottom and then forms up. And so the very bottom of our brain is what's called the reptilian brain. This is the most um, primitive part of our brain because again, it's forming first. And it also is responsible for the most basic, basic functions. We're talking breathing, sleeping. um, And then on top of this reptilian brain, we have the brainstem and the hypothalamus. And this part is coordinating the functions of the heart, the lungs, um, endocrine system, so meaning hormones, and um, the immune system. And this portion is developed while our mom is still carrying us. 
And then um, we have the part of our brain that's kind of the seat of our emotions. It's it's probably familiar um, to some referring to um, the limbic system. That's the part of the brain, the emotional seat. And its job is to keep us safe. And so um, if there are threats or perceived threats, then it will fire off a whole chain of events, which we'll talk about in a minute, just so that we can have what we need to continue um, in life. And then the third part of the brain that develops is the rational brain. And this does not begin to form until around age two. So cool. Only mammals have this highest portion of our brain. And out of all of the mammals, humans have the thickest. And if I, can I, can I insert a little bit of my faith in here, Jeff? Oh, please, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so I feel like personally, as um, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I feel like this is where our ability to um, reason and um, this is what sets us apart from animals, this ability to be able to use this higher function of our brain, to be able to exercise our agency, to be able to um, observe situations and ourselves and make judgment calls. And this is, this is, this portion of our brain gives us the ability to improve, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, it's like, this is where our agency is active, right? Exactly. Yeah. You've got it. Because without it, the other portions of our brain, we've got that reptilian brain. We share, it's called reptilian because it's like reptiles, right? We share all of those other portions of our brains, of our brain with animals, the fight, flight, or freeze in the limbic system. But this rational brain is what sets us apart from all of the other creations. Um, and so talking a little bit more about the emotional brain, like, like what we were saying in a moment ago, um, for individuals who've been through trauma, there can be many changes to like what you were saying earlier, the body, but especially the brain and the nervous system. And let's focus on one major change because it ties really well with the yoga. So there's one part of our brain called the amygdala. And its job is to sound the alarm anytime that there is a threat or a perceived threat. And so for individuals who have been through trauma, the amygdala can get very, very touchy and jumpy, if you will. It can fire off much more easily than comparing before the trauma. And um, it, our, our brains, every part of our bodies have been divinely designed. Again, I'm pulling my faith in and I'm sorry. No, please do. Um, this is actually a faith-based podcast. Um, thank you. But I, I remember sitting in my very first anatomy and physiology class. I went through nursing school just in complete awe of um, what our body can do. And something so simple as wiggling my finger requires this whole uh, chain of muscular and nervous system and hormones, you know? And so I firmly believe that every part of our body was divinely designed. Even this emotional part of our brain, it was designed to keep us safe so that when there's a threat or something that could potentially be a threat, 
it fires off. And so um, we have the hypothalamus and the brainstem that get involved. And so the, the hormones such as adrenaline and cortisone, we go into a branch of the nervous system so that our heart rate increases, our respiratory rate increases, our blood pressure increases, so that our body is prepared to run away or to fight the threat. And it was, it was divinely designed. But for individuals who have had this amygdala rewired because they have been through something significantly traumatic, for me, it felt very troublesome. Mm-hmm. It felt very embarrassing to um, have such a touchy amygdala that I would be fine. And then all of a sudden I was not fine. Um, and so even though it was divinely designed, it was designed to be a short-term mechanism right. to get us safe. And so along those lines as well, individuals who've been through trauma can not only have changes to the amygdala making it more touchy, but they can also have a harder time coming back down right. after threat is over. They just don't ever come back down or come back down briefly and then they're re-triggered onto something else. And so um, going hand in hand with this, another significant change um, associated with the amygdala is the connection that the amygdala has with another part of the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex, the MPFC. And that is that higher brain we were talking about earlier. It um, gives an individual access to logic and reason. I like to picture it, it's almost like it gives you an aerial view that you can look at what's going on and slow things down and bring in that reason. Um, And so this connection, it's almost like, I'm such a visual learner, so hopefully this helps your listeners. But for me, I picture it's almost like there's a trigger, there's something that's happening on the outside, five senses involved, the brain has a split second to choose which branch it's going to go down. Is it going to go down the amygdala, sound the alarm, go into a trauma response, fight, flight, freeze? Or is it going to go the MPFC route and say, okay, what's going on here? Perfect example. Just the other night, um, I had my kids tucked in bed. I came in the kitchen to throw something away. And as I was walking by, I swear I saw a giant spider crawling across the floor. (laughs) And um, we'll talk more in a second, tying this into yoga. But I was at that branch, right? Like, am I going to scream and wake up my whole household of little kids that took forever to wake up, right? I mean, it's not that we can rationalize through this in this moment. But luckily, I went down the MPFC route because all that it was was my daughter must have been combing some Barbie hair. It was a hairball from Uh. one of her on the floor. And me walking by, you know, created a draft so it looked like a big hairy spider going across (laughs) the floor. And so, um, again, for individuals who've been through trauma, it's like they cannot get quick enough access to this MPFC, that part of their brain, that would help them to say, chill out. You're just fine. It's just a hairball, right? Right. So they're living in a constant Uh, state of false alarms. You've got it. Exactly. And so um, I think one more thing to add, and then if you're good, then let's tie it into yoga. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, this fight, flight, freeze mode I was talking about a moment ago, it utilizes one branch of the nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, where we are put into that high alert that is so wearing on organs, yeah. on bodily systems to constantly be in that state of alert. And it's so interesting. I don't think I sent my list to you, Jeff. Um, probably a year or so ago, I asked on Instagram, I, I asked women, what are some of the physical effects that you have had because of trauma? It was astounding, Jeff. The wow. list that said, you know, I lost all of this weight. My thyroid was off on and on and on and on. And I believe that as we are constantly in that branch of the sympathetic nervous system, that amygdala firing, 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 it is so wearing on our body. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Any, any other thoughts before we tie this into the good news about yoga. Well, I, th I think it, I think it, what it, what it does for me is, as I think about this, you know, the impact on the brain and the body is that we just can't minimize the effect this is having. This isn't just a logical thing of telling a woman who's been betrayed or any man or woman who's been traumatized that they should just get over it or think differently or that they're just making this up or they're, being high maintenance or dramatic about this. Like they're right. literally battling a system that's trying to get them to safety. And so mm -hmm. much of their day, they're, they're basically cruising around with one foot on the gas, one foot on the brake, mm -hmm. and there's smoke and sparks and everything <laughs> going everywhere. Right. It's just so damaging and difficult on the system. And so what you're talking about is how do we quiet down the brain? How do we calm it down? and get people's brains and bodies to safety so they can sort out what's really a threat and what's not. Yeah, you are so spot on. Can I read this quote from um, the book, The Body Keeps the Score? Yeah. He says, this is page 64. He says, quote, psychologists usually try to help people use insight and understanding to manage their behavior. However, neuroscience research shows that very few psychological problems are the result of defects in understanding. Most originate in pressures from deeper regions in the brain that drive our perception and attention. When the alarm bell of the emotional brain keeps signaling that you are in danger, no amount of insight will silence it. And if I can add um, this book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, he is also a therapist. And so um, from my own personal experience, I, we didn't mention I went through the Lifestar program. Um, shortly after D-Day. And so I, I want to make it very clear that in no way am I negating the important, important work of working with qualified therapists. But I feel like it's one more angle to approach. And I love how um, I was in some additional training with my yoga instructor, Soraya, just a few weeks ago. And I love how she described it. She said, for individuals who are working with a qualified therapist regularly, and are still feeling stuck, they need to find a way to get into their body. 100%. And yoga absolutely does that. Absolutely. So. Yep. And and for me, it's about track. It's about traction and they'll do better work so that yeah. they can actually, we do need insight and we do need understanding and education and all that other support. But if our brain is compromised and nothing's getting in and we're just constantly rejecting everything as a threat, then yeah. it's going to be a huge waste of all that time and effort and money to do the therapy. So I agree that body work, 
Um, even if you're not formally hiring somebody to help you with body work, there's a lot of other kinds of body work you can do in a self-care practice to help mm-hmm. slow yourself down. And I know you're going to introduce us to a lot of that. So yeah, absolutely. Insight doesn't work unless your brain is online and trauma throws the brain offline instantly. Totally. And, and I would say again, from my own personal experience, I didn't realize what we were doing at the time. We were just so innately drawn to many of these things that at the time, seven years ago, were so out of the box and everybody thought I was such a weirdo. You know? <laughs> I know. Yeah. But it was almost like we were beaming on the trauma for me and the roots of my husband's addiction from multiple angles all at the same time, like what you were saying. And so as we were going to therapy, we were getting more out of it because we were doing yoga. And as we were doing yoga, we were getting more out of it because we were doing EMDR and now QNRT. And so totally, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about, let's talk about yoga. Okay. So, um, for individuals who have had their brain shifted from trauma, there are two options to balance the brain out. The first is by starting at the top of the brain and working down. The goal of working from the top down is to strengthen the MPFC, which totally makes sense to me that the stronger that is, the more we can learn to almost hover in neutral before firing automatically to that amygdala. So the amygdala begins to quiet down because the MPFC, there we go, tongue twister 10 times, <laughs> it's stronger when there is a trigger. It'll step up quicker. And then the other option is from the bottom up, um, things like breath, touch. And so um, just right there, does that make you excited about yoga? Yeah. That is how, yeah. in a nutshell, boiled down, it works. Um, and, and I guess I want to add before I plunge into talking about a lot of the things that we do while on our yoga mat, um, yoga is more than just, at least for me, than moving my body on my mat. It mm-hmm. has become a lifestyle because yoga is a science. It is a science of awareness. And it is awareness of self. Um, maybe to help illustrate this, with the crazy, insane amount of training that I was doing in 2018, I was literally all over the country, California, Minnesota, Atlanta, um, away from home quite a bit last year. I cannot tell you how incredible it is to be at home no matter where I go. Yeah, Which, wow. for individuals who've been through trauma the body can be a really scary place. Yeah. And so just, I guess that's the angle that I'm coming from, even though we will talk pretty um, two-dimensional about the time on our yoga mat. Yes, I've had that daily practice, but now it is infusing into my daily life. And I will be observing <laughs> my breath until I take my last breath because it is incorporating now into my life as a whole. Um, And so one of the things that we do on our yoga mat is called asana. And we're going to keep this as scientific as we can for you scientific people. Um, But this is referring to the poses that we do. So maybe some poses that you've heard of before are down dog or child's pose. Um, 
These poses can help to develop strength and flexibility and balance in a nutshell, but there are so many amazing things that they can do. Things like helping with our body to um, digest or circulate more properly. Um, Also helping to replenish the brain, stimulating organs and glandular systems. Um, That would be when we're doing like our headstands or the reversing the blood flow, strengthening our nervous system, massaging and toning the entire visceral system, detoxifying glands and organs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So as we are purposely putting our body in different positions, we are sending blood flow to different parts of our body as we're doing a twist or like I said, you know, an inversion where I'm doing a headstand. Um, And so from an anatomy and physiology standpoint, that's kind of how the asana, the poses that we are doing um, is working by putting our our body in different positions. Additionally, I would add for individuals who've been through trauma, um, it was so, I started with kundalini yoga um, about six and a half years ago. It was so interesting to then be introduced to hatha yoga. In kundalini, we don't have very many asanas. Uh, Most of the time, we're just sitting in a cross-legged position. Sometimes we move more than that, but it's a lot with hands and arms. It's a lot with mantras. So to be introduced to Hatha yoga, where the poses is such a big part of the practice, it was interesting to observe myself, parts of my body that I had never even thought about. Like, wow, I remember one of the first... um, Weekends of training with Soraya, she was encouraging us to lift up our toes one at a time. Mm. And I'm like, I've never even thought about my pinky toe ever <laughs> you know, before. And so I feel like as we do these asanas, these different poses, not only are we having that scientific anatomy and physiology-based benefit, but it's that opportunity to be aware of our body, to be mindful and present to this moment to this breath rather than being disconnected and checked out to come into our body, to be aware of where we just placed our feet, to be aware of what our hands are doing, um, to be observing our breath in this pose. And do I need to back down a little bit so that my breath can flow more freely? It just is rad, rad stuff. Um, the second component to talk about with the, the things that we do in our mat is called mudra. And this is referring to what we do with our fingers and our hands. Two classic examples you might be already aware of is as we place our thumb and our pointer fingers, uh, fingertips touching, that's called gyan mudra. Or as we place our hands, palms touching at our heart center, that's called prayer mudra. Um, I sent Jeff over a picture from a book that I love called Meditation is Medicine. It's by by Khalsa, and he's actually a doctor and a kundalini yogi. And um, he he drew out a diagram of the brain, like a cross section. Is that what you would call it? A side view. Uh There you go, of the brain. And he, um, he showed which parts of the brain are activated as we use which parts of our body. And it was mind-blowing. Jeff, would you say maybe 80, 85% of the brain? That's my estimation. Help me so that I'm not <laughs> I'm not making it more dramatic than it is. But 
I'd say about 80, 85% of the brain is lit up as we use our shoulders up, our neck up. So our arms, our hands, our mouth. Um, and so as we are touching our fingers in different um, positions or our hands in putting our hands in different positions in these different mudras, we are literally accessing lighting up different parts of our brain. Yeah, that's remarkable. And and to me, it's as I as I listened to you talk about this and as I read some of the things you sent me, what struck me the most is that this for people that are dealing with trauma, you know, any form of trauma, just you know, just taking whatever approach to yoga is not enough. You you really want to find a yoga practice that will activate like you said the specific parts of the brain and actually be more brain healing instead of just flexibility or you know, breathing, even though those have benefits, there's something very specific about the types of yoga that can be actually very therapeutic for healing a traumatized brain. Yeah, I love that. I think that's such a great point. And I find it, again, interesting that I've experienced both now. Kundalini mm-hmm. yoga was brought to America by Yogi Bhajan. There are literally thousands of Kriyas, um, which is more of the movement portion, um, meditations as well that are now available because of what Yogi Bhajan brought to the West. And so you, you could spend your time trying a new Kriya every day of your life and probably still not experience all of it. But to begin, what worked for me was to find what I needed and to stick with that. And then at times when I was struggling more with trauma, um, you know, for example, when I was going through the trauma egg assignment in Lifestar, I upped my yoga and added in additional meditations or a second Kriya actually. Um, and so finding one that will do what you need. I love that. And then I would also piggyback, um, as well that not all yoga instructors are created equal. Is that a nice way to say that? Sure. No, that's, that's uh, understandable. I'm so fortunate that Soraya has been through, my teacher has been through um, yoga therapy training, 1200 hour yoga therapy training twice. And so she teaches in a very, very therapeutic way and has trained us to be very, um, sensitive to students as far as the adjustments that they may need to make and incorporate mental, emotional throughout our entire class, rather than showing up and doing gym yoga and we're fast paced with, you know, crazy music right. playing the background and, and no offense intended in saying that that's fun. And that fits for some people, but for individuals who've been through trauma to purposely seek out the good fit that they personally need, because there are so many yoga options out there. So. Yeah. And I, I jumped on Soraya's website and looked at some of her videos. Uh, I think <laughs> she, she does a monthly subscription for her content, which is really high quality stuff. And uh, yes, it felt very different than some of the yoga uh, that I've done in my own life and also seen done. And um, yeah, it's, it's very trauma sensitive, very, it's, it's informed in a different way. So for sure. Yeah. I love that. Thanks for inserting that. Are you okay if we keep going? Yeah. Okay. So third component to talk about as we um, are practicing on our mat is what we call mantra. Sometimes in yoga classes, we we chant mantras. Um, Many times they're in a foreign language. Sometimes they're in English. Mm -hmm. The two languages that I've chanted mantras in are Sanskrit and Gurmukhi. I sent Jeff over a link for a website that helps to translate. I personally like to know what I'm chanting if I'm chanting. (laughs) 
Um, two classic examples would be the OM that we make fun of, right? When we think of yoga um, or a Kundalini mantra is Satnam. It means truth is my name. Truth is my identity. Mantra makes sense to me where um, I actually have a second degree in music as a singer. Hmm. And when you think about as we're chanting mantras, it's different sounds will resonate differently in our mouths. There are 84 different reflex points in our mouths. Now think about this. What's on the other side of our hard palate at the top of our, the roof of our mouth? It's our brain. Our brain. Yeah, there it is. Right? So as we are chanting, we are vibrating. And so the two systems that are the most sensitive, endocrine, so hormones, and neurologic, are affected the most as we chant mantras. Now, just like you were saying a moment ago, um, kundalini yoga is extremely, extremely precise. We chant this for this many minutes. We do this mudra with our fingers or our hands for this many minutes. There are mantras that are designed to do different things. So, and, and I would say this goes for the asanas, for the yoga poses as well. Different poses, different mudras, different mantras can energize or they can calm, et cetera, et cetera. Does that make sense? And so um, pretty cool to think about from an anatomy and physiology standpoint, right? Right. Wow. <laughs> can strengthen your immune system by chanting mantras every day. And the science is now catching up to prove it. <laughs> yeah. Um, the fourth component that we wanted to talk about today is breath. Now, as a retired nurse, this is so cool to think about. Out of all of the bodily systems that we have, our respiratory system is the only system of the body that is both voluntary and involuntary. So what this means is it's voluntary. Uh, thankfully, we don't have to remember to breathe. <laughs> We will breathe. Our body will take care of it. Um, other examples of voluntary would be like our heart beating. We do not have right, to remember right. our heart. It will do it. But it is also involuntary, meaning we can have control over it. So examples of involuntary would be our muscular system. We are choosing how to move our body. We may not be conscious to it, but it only moves when we are, are uh, voluntarily moving it. And so, again, I return to the respiratory system is the only system that does both. So we can choose how we will breathe, how long we breathe. Um, there are so many different breath exercises in yoga, so many different ways to breathe. We could do a specific inhale and a normal exhale or a specific, you know, exhale through this nostril or through your rolled up tongue, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so cool. I sent Jeff over a link to an article. I think it was just November of 2017. So pretty recent. Um, there was a study done in a very unique way. Most times that we study the brain, it's through MRI imaging or from the outside. But there were individuals, if I'm recalling the details correctly, that were in another study for epilepsy. And so the people who ran the study were able to attach the electrodes directly to the brain itself for this study. And what they concluded at the end of the study is voluntarily breathing, even just by being aware of our breathing 
gives us access to parts of our brain that are otherwise difficult to access and additionally helps to coordinate areas of our brain that normally are difficult to um, get to work together, if that makes sense, just by voluntarily breathing. Yeah, I love that. And I, I'm not sure if this was the quote. Is it, is in the, I pulled a quote from one of the articles you sent me that I loved, and I saved it in my notes here. It's and 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 they said humans' ability to control and regulate their brain is unique. Controlling emotions, deciding to stay awake despite being tired or suppressing thoughts. Right, these abilities are not trivial, nor do humans share them with many animals. Breathing is similar. Animals do not alter their breathing. They don't alter their breathing speed. Uh, voluntarily. Their breathing normally only changes in response to running, resting, etc. Questions that have baffled scientists in this context are why are humans capable of regulating their breathing and how do we gain access to parts of our brain that are not normally under our conscious control? That blew my mind. I mean, I understand that, but I've never had anybody wrap words around it like that. I thought that was so cool. Yeah. And piggybacking off of what you're saying, the breath is the gateway to our mind. And think about this. Have you ever stopped to think about this, Jeff? How do we breathe when we're surprised? <gasps> yeah. Right? A big yes. right. How do we breathe when we're anxious? You know, shallow. For me, I'm not getting down, you know, very low in my lungs. And it's rapid and it's fast. And so think about the opposite. And we'll play with this in the next episode. As we change the way we are breathing we literally can change the way that we are feeling and not that we, that we numb out. Do you know what I mean? And we don't acknowledge that I'm anxious, but it clicks something in our brain. Yep. When we use that, that higher brain, like what we were talking about, that higher consciousness that's unique to us as God's children to tap into that. Yep. It changes the way that we feel by changing the way we breathe. Yeah, yeah. So cool. I have the coolest job. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, okay, it's so, amazing. Um, also, we talk about drishti, and that is the, the place that we're focusing our eyes as we're doing different asanas in hatha yoga. Right. Kundalini, it usually specifies, and if it doesn't, then the eyes are closed and rolled up and into what's called the third eye point. So if we were a three-eyed monster, it would be that space between our eyebrows. Um, I, I don't remember if I included this link for the um, notes. And if you're interested, let, let's check. But I included a link to one of the Kundalini Yoga websites that talks about the different focuses. Sometimes they'll tell us, you know, focus on your chin or focus up the top, the crown of your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, it the link talks about which parts of our brain are being activated by which drishti. So is the pineal gland being activated or the pituitary gland? Um, all just because of where we're focusing our eyes. Now, if I can throw out here, I wasn't planning to say this, but um, I've done EMDR myself and now as a quantum neural reset therapy practitioner. Um, so cute. My kids had their eye appointments and the optometrist had his, his pen light and was having him follow the different directions um, with their eyes. And my little eight-year-old said, oh, you do QNRT too? And got so excited. <laughs> now, you know, the eye doctor is asking my husband, what is he talking about? And he um, told him, well, my wife does brain wellness and 
um, works to resolve the traumas that are lodged in specific lobes of the brain. And so um, we activate specific lobes of the brain in order to get access to that. And so talking about drishti right now is making me think about that movement that we do in EMDR. And we also do some of that in QNRT. One more, I guess, a third witness here with drishti that we are activating specific parts of the brain, depending on where we are focusing our eyes. That's remarkable. Um, Meditative state, I feel like we already kind of were hitting on that. Um, We were talking about the sympathetic nervous system, that fight, flight, freeze mode that we go into. The other branch of the nervous system is what's called the parasympathetic nervous system. And when we are in the parasympathetic nervous system, that is when we heal. That is when our body can rest. Um, Even digestion has to happen when we are in the parasympathetic nervous system. So interesting in working with women the past seven years, how often I hear women say, you know, when I, when we had D-Day, I couldn't eat for like two days straight. How interesting to observe that when we are in that high stress mode, we can't even properly digest. Yeah, right. And so for women who are going through trauma, I, I guess, how do I word this and be inclusive, but not sounding accusatory? Um, I think it's important for any person to care well for their body. What an incredible gift. But for individuals who are going through trauma, we need to take extra careful, conscious and intentional care of our body. And so For me, when I first started my yoga practice six and a half years ago, I had no idea. I had, I did not know any of these things that I'm telling you today. I just knew I felt great. But for me, unknowingly, it became a time every day that my body could rest. So I, I had, because of the time and season of life I was in, about 60 minutes every day for my yoga practice. And for me, that was one of the few times in the day where my body was resting. And Mm, so a huge benefit to our time on the mat is this meditative state that we are in going into that parasympathetic nervous system so we can rest. Like it may feel like you're not doing anything or you need to be getting more done, but that's the lie the trauma (laughs) is telling you, right? It's telling you you need to run and flee and do something and you're saying, nope. We're going to slow right. down and shut that off and, and tell your body you're safe. I love that. And, and again, I said earlier, it can be a scary place mm-hmm. for women. Um, having taught women and then I also taught kids, I always offer um, closing the eyes if that feels safe, but softening the gaze if it doesn't. Right. Um, I cannot tell you how many individuals, you know, when it comes to the end part of the class where we will lay on our back and just rest in Shavasana many students don't feel safe to close right, their eyes. Right. I had I had one friend who told me she would blink and her PTSD symptoms were so bad, even in blinking, yeah. she would struggle. And so I guess I just want, I just want to offer that other side that it may not necessarily be something that's comfortable at first. Like what you're saying to slow down can feel so foreign. But as I did it day after day, I began to see the benefits of that daily practice and that daily time in that meditative state. 
Yeah, this is fascinating. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Yep. Um, and then the last one that I had listed for our time on the mat is um, what we call uh, what we call um, sangha. Sorry, I was, I'm still thinking shavasana with an sh. Sangha is the word that we um, use to describe our yoga community. And I think we've hit on this a little bit already, recognizing that just like not all therapists are created equal. Am I allowed to say that, Jeff? <laughs> um, we personally went through four therapists before we oh, found yeah, absolutely. Um, our therapist at Lifestar. And so maybe you're going to have to shop around. If you're, if you're choosing to go to a live yoga class, you may need to shop around until you find a teacher that you resonate with. And I personally believe that the teacher attracts the students who resonate with them. And so the class dynamic will be reflective of that teacher. And so as we find a good fit, it gives us the opportunity to be part of, of Sangha, of this tribe and this community, and to be able to rally around with like-minded people. And um, I totally sound like a new age hippie in saying this, but I believe it with my whole heart that these people that we can breathe with and be with. Um, when, when yoga is taught in a therapeutic way, sometimes it can be emotional. And so to find that, that tribe where I know I can unroll my yoga mat and maybe this is the only safe space that I feel like I have in the whole rest of my week. Right. But to be with my yoga community as I heal and become more aware of myself and process. Um, can I, let's see if I can find it. There was one, oh, okay. This would summarize, I think, my whole um, point with yoga in one sentence. This is again from The Body Keeps the Score, page 277. He says, people who feel safe in their bodies can begin to translate the memories that previously overwhelmed them into language. And so for me, this processing of the trauma um, in my body, in my yoga practice, in the lifestyle changes that it created, in the processing that I was doing with EMDR and then later QNRT, I was then able to articulate it. And so to be doing yoga at the same time that I was doing EMDR, at the same time that I was doing talk therapy, at the same time that I was doing the 12-step program, that work that was happening in my body was able to come back around and I could finally articulate it. And then because I could name it, um, I love Dan Siegel talks about you name it to tame it. Yep. Then I could tame it and work through it and integrate the trauma into my life story. Yeah, that's the best. That's exactly the goal, right? And right. And people who have been traumatized need options. And yeah. this is this is a huge option for so many people because you do get stuck in your body and, and you feel like you're just a prisoner in your own system and it's terrifying. Yeah. It is. I felt like I was a walking time bomb. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as you're talking, if I may add, um, now I kept saying seven years out, seven years out. We are seven years out from D-Day. Hallelujah. Um, and I feel like we were talking earlier about how the talk therapy is great 
But if we need more, then look into yoga therapy. And I would add, there are still times that even with this lifestyle change, even having, having, having worked through the talk therapy side and the 12-step side, I still at times have peeled back new layers of healing or I would say um, have had different life experiences that may not even be betrayal trauma related, but the same patterns can help. Um, knowing that there are so many options and for me bringing my faith in again, that means I get on my knees and say, Heavenly Father, I am struggling. I'm doing all that I can, but I, I need some help to process through this. And sometimes it has been as simple as being led to the right passage in the scriptures. One time it was snowshoeing in the mountains. Sometimes it is um, picking a specific Kriya or moving my body very intentionally on my yoga mat. Um, I shared with you as we were messaging back and forth about creating this episode, um, when I was in the middle of my trauma egg assignment, I found out that my community was going to be um, performing the Messiah and I got up my guts and I auditioned and was asked to be a soloist. And so in the middle of my trauma egg assignment, I was able to stand up on stage, preach about Jesus Christ through music in a beautiful gown with an orchestra behind me and my full soprano range. And that did something for me and it moved the trauma. Um, Creativity. I love that uh, Bessel van der Kolk gets into that in his book. He talks about theater. He talks about art. He talks about music. And what happens when we engage in creativity is that it actually moves the trauma from the amygdala into the medial prefrontal cortex. So now, because it's in the logical part of our brain, it can be processed. And so there are unlimited options. And I firmly believe from my personal experience, working with clients, mentoring women for years, there is no one size fits all, if that makes sense. There are patterns, there are jumping off points, but each one of us are going to have to figure out our specific healing formula, if you will. And yeah. even then, it's different every day and different every time. Yeah, absolutely. Sense. Well, what I love about this is the message is so hopeful. It's basically... Look, if you are struggling with trauma stuck in your body and you feel totally powerless and helpless, you have options. And there are so yeah. many other things that you can try to to work to dislodge this and to heal it and integrate it and not live in this prison. And you're giving us some wonderful options. And I know that we could go on forever. This is phenomenal. Like the stuff you're sharing is so eye-opening and so helpful. And I will absolutely link in the show notes uh, to all these wonderful resources um, and I also want to have you back so that we can have you walk us through uh, some of these exercises so that people can get a little taste of it and, and experience some of that. Sounds great. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, you bet. We'll see you next episode. <laughs>